The class that I've um, been asked to teach this morning is, is how to take a soil sample. And some, obviously many of you are familiar with, uh, uh, with uh, utilizing soil analysis for your benefit. And I uh, want to just maybe give you some pointers about how to get the best results from your soil sample. Because frankly, the information that you get is only as good as the sample that you submit, right? So what we want to discuss a little bit today is what kind of information is available through soil analysis, some of the methods that I use for taking soil samples, and uh, how to get the most accurate results uh, from your soil analysis. Because oftentimes, especially if you're growing uh, a lot of, 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 of crop, uh, there's a big investment that's tied to the information that you get from that soil analysis. So that's what we're going to discuss this morning. I'm Bob Gregory. Some of you may have uh, heard a little bit about me uh, last evening when, when I was introduced, but I've been working in agriculture for over 50 years, and uh, the majority of that time I, I served as a crop consultant out in uh, the western states and in Latin America. And over the course of time, I've probably taken thousands of soil samples. And uh, the technique that we use and the methodology that we use is very important uh, to getting good results. I'm going to talk about a few other things in the course of uh, the discussion this morning. And for more information about anything that we do, or if you have interest in, in uh, looking at some videos that, that go into a deeper discussion of some of the topics I'm going to touch on this morning, make a note of our web address here, if you would, uh, bereagardens.org. Uh, there are some uh, video downloads, uh, some PowerPoint uh, presentations on there that can be very helpful uh, discussing some of the aspects of what uh, I'm going to talk about this morning that we're not going to have time to, to, to go into deeply. Before we start this morning, let's have a word of prayer, shall we? Father in heaven, we're grateful for the liberty to come together here and to discuss this topic of agriculture. We're thankful for the commitment of all the people that have invested their labors in organizing uh, this opportunity, and I pray that your Holy Spirit will be with us today in all that uh, we say and do, that you can lead us to the truths that will help us to understand how better to fulfill your desire that we work with the soil. Abide with us now, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're exercising a little bit here to see if my clicker is going to reach where my computer is in the back of the room. And I haven't used it over a distance like this, so I may struggle a little bit with advancing slides for you. But uh, th this is a picture of our farm. We uh, have about 120 acres in West Virginia where we purchased a farm, and after we bought the farm, the Lord provided us with an abandoned school building that was adjacent to our farm, and that is uh, Berea Gardens, our, our training center and our market farm. Of the 120 acres, I actually uh, cultivate a little less than three of those acres for our market farming purposes. We have fruit trees, we have small fruits, we have berries, blueberries, raspberries, blackberries, and we grow the majority of our food uh, on this site, as well as supporting ourselves with market farming. Uh, up until just recently, uh, my daughter was at home helping me with the farming. Uh, for the last two years, I basically am doing it on my own. And part of our reason for, for staying small like that is because we want to encourage those of you that have an interest 
and supporting yourselves in a country lifestyle through agriculture uh, with a demonstration farm that is actually family scale. We don't have interns, we don't uh, have volunteers. There are occasional times when there's a, a, a heavy workload where I will uh, bring in a couple of the young people from our community to help me for a day or, or sometimes two days at a time with harvesting some things. But the majority of the work is done by these two hands. And we're able to support ourselves doing that. And this is part of our objective is to demonstrate that it is possible. Uh, to, to, to earn a living from the land, even in these times. Now, now I've got a, I'm sorry, I've got a failure on my computer here. There we go. Um, <clears throat> with my background in agriculture, I have gone from a very large scale to a very small scale, but I have found that the rewards at the smaller scale are far greater than the rewards that I had at the larger scale. And it doesn't have to be big to be successful. Uh, the reality today with economics being what they are, with the interest in the local food movement that is taking place around the country, it's conceivable to earn between thirty dollars and $50,000 per acre of cultivated area. And that's a pretty, uh, you know, uh, substantial income compared to the costs of operating an operation that small. There are great efficiencies that you have in small-scale agriculture that don't exist in larger-scale agriculture. And because the cost of oil is so high and the cost of, of farm inputs for large-scale agriculture have become so high, we've reached a point where I can produce organic produce uh, on a small scale and market it and still, uh, uh, still find a profit margin in doing that, even competing with the large multinational corporations. One of the things that I want to mention this morning, it's a little bit off topic, but I, again, can we advance the slide, please? Uh, one of the things that I want to uh, mention this morning also is that in agriculture today, as I said last night, there are a lot of winds of doctrine that are blowing about. And my philosophy, after all of the com complex situations that I've found myself in over 50 years, is that simpler is indeed better. I honestly believe that the simplest way that we can do things, the most efficient we can be, is by far the best that we can be. And in that sense, there are many winds of doctrine blowing through agriculture today that I think deviate uh, to some degree from what the Lord's intention for us was when he put us on the garden. You know, in Genesis 3.23, he, he tells Adam to, uh, that, that he's, he's banished from Eden and he's to go out and till the land from whence he came. That word till is an important word, I believe. And there are many methods and, and various different strategies for producing crops today that, that don't fit that criteria. So I'm a traditionalist in that sense, and I believe that it's important for us to work with the soil. That it's important for us, and agronomically this is sound also, that if we do it properly and if we do it appropriately, then many of these other methods of agriculture that are being utilized today are, are really kind of outside of that biblical model. Hydroponics, for example, is one very uh, popular method for growing crops because you don't have to get dirty doing it and you rely very heavily on all kinds of mechanized systems and inputs 
The costs for establishing an operation hydroponically are very, very high, and you're totally reliant on systems that are beyond your control. I don't feel that that's the way the Lord would have us to garden. I don't feel that that's the way the Lord would have us demonstrate to the world the blessings that can be found when we start cooperating with him in working in the soil. Biodynamics is another kind of catchphrase that's out there right now uh, about using all kinds of natural inputs into your garden. I'm not opposed to actual natural inputs, but uh, uh, biodynamics is, is really a, a methodology that can mean whatever you want it to mean. The word biodynamic just means that life is active. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it, it sells a lot of books. If you want to make money in agriculture, by the way, the best thing to do is to not worry about growing crops, just come up with a methodology and write a book. Because there are a lot of people that are interested in agriculture right now and growing food and doing something different from what we know the toxic common method for producing food is. And everybody is struggling and looking for a new idea. And they will follow one method for a period of time. And if that isn't successful, then they're looking for, the, for another method. And they're constantly looking for that missing piece of information that has, uh, you know, has not allowed them to be as successful as they would like to be. Aquaculture also is a bit of a problem these days. Aquaculture is a method of utilizing fish production in combination with agriculture where you, uh, where you basically farm fish in, in uh, waters that are then used to irrigate your crops. There are a lot of problems with that from a phytosanitary perspective, especially if you're growing things that will be consumed raw. Uh, there's a lot of biological uh, waste product in that that uh, can get you into trouble with the, the Food Safety Modernization Act, and it's just not a, a, a viable alternative to, to working and, and tilling the soil. Uh, perm permaculture is also a term that uh, you're probably familiar with. It's become very uh, common today for, for uh, gardeners to uh, go to basically a no-till system in their gardens where they lay down various different layers of of uh, organic material and uh, instead of, of, of tilling that organic material when one crop uh, is completed it's simply replanted with another crop that's a recipe for disaster in the long run and uh, realistically it's not a practical way to uh, to, to achieve uh, excellent production if you'd advance the slide please <clears throat> What I have learned over time is that working with our soil is a process of building the soil really in two steps. And the soil analysis is useful for both of these purposes, but one of the ways that I, I, I apply the information of a soil analysis is very, very different than what mainstream agriculture does. Typically, when we take a soil analysis, we think what we're looking for are basically the nutrient elements in the soil, correct? Isn't that what most of us are interested in? How much nitrogen do I need? How much phosphorus do I need? How much zinc do I need to apply? Well, I kind of take that whole paradigm and stand it on its head and use an aspect of the soil analysis very, very differently than most soil scientists do. And I'm going to get into a little deeper explanation of that. But before we analyze our soil, one of the things that's helpful, especially if you're working with a new soil, would you advance the slide, please? Is to know some of the characteristics of 
the depth of your soil profile. And I presume that uh, since you are gardeners that uh, you're aware that soils across the country vary tremendously, not only in their physical characteristics, but also in their depth. This is a, a map of the major soil orders of the United States here on the slide, and each color represents a really entirely different order of soil, and with each of these, within each of these orders, there are hundreds of different soil types. So what um, we can use as a tool, advance the slide please, what we can use as a tool to help us understand something about the soil order, separate and apart from the chemistry of the soil, is some information that's been gleaned over time since the Dust Bowl era, really, when the USDA undertook to do a soil map of the entire United States. And there's information available to you online through this website, websoilsurvey.nrcs.usda.gov, that can give you a representation of the soil map for your individual property. And these soil maps are amazingly accurate to me. They uh, were initiated back in the 19, late 1930s by men with, with soil probes and shovels and boots on the ground, and it was actually completed by the space shuttle uh, using um, methods of, of, uh, of, of uh, radar and, and other techniques that they had infrared scanning that they were able to complete this soil map for the entire country and it gives us some of the physical characteristics of the soil. It tells us how deep the soil is to a restrictive barrier uh, like a hard pan or a, 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 a stone shelf, limestone. It tells us what the, 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 the rate of water penetration is in each of these soils and it can give you some potential uh, comparisons between one soil type and another as far as productivity. It's a really useful tool. Uh, I've made use of this on our place, for example, to determine where to plant our fruit trees. On the surface of the soil, the soil looks very much the same. There's very little difference. But because of the information I was able to glean from this, I, I, I came to understand what was taking place six feet down in the soil. I don't have a backhoe, so I wasn't able to dig that deep, and I wasn't uh, energetic enough to dig a hole that deep. But I was able to do some comparisons between the soil types on my property and find where the location was where I would have the best drainage for my orchard. And these are ways that this information can be applied that's very, very useful. Now, <clears throat> slide please. <coughs> Excuse me. One of the first things I want to, uh, you know, discuss with you this morning is what is soil? What are we talking about when we take a soil sample? And essentially soil is a uh, a ratio of minerals, air, water, and organic matter. And when we take a soil sample, what we're actually analyzing is what the mineral content is in the soil. Now, the mineral content only makes up about 50% of most soils. Almost a quarter of what we're walking on when we're walking around out here is air, and another quarter of that is water. So 50% of soils are air and water. And this is a ratio when the soils are uh, actually growing crops, actually producing something. Obviously, there are periods of time when it's more saturated than that, and the air and water ratios move back and forth uh, as, as soils dry and, and, and are, are wetted. Uh, 
Uh, and the organic matter in most of the soils that we use for gardening is, is roughly three to five percent. I prefer to keep my soils up in the four to four to five percent range, but that's very adequate and very, very productive for, for most soils. There are a few soil types where the organic matter can be much higher than that. Uh, that's not necessarily an advantage if you don't have the right mineral content in the soil too. Over time, that organic matter remineralizes and adds to the mineral content of the soil, but having a real uh, coarse amount and large amount of organic matter in your soils is not really the best for plant roots. You need a, a good balance of mineral content in there, and this ratio is about ideal for growing most crops. Slide, please. <clears throat> The things that we learn from a soil analysis are uh, essentially these. <clears throat> we can learn from the soil analysis what the percentage of organic matter is. Um, essentially, this is done by firing the soil sample and turning everything that's organic matter into carbon. So essentially what you're measuring here when you're measuring organic matter is you're measuring how much carbon is in the soil. That's on a good soil report. It will tell us, to some degree, the texture of our soil, how much sand, how much silt, and how much clay is in the soil. And this is actually reported in a way that is not spelled out for you very clearly. It's, it's, it's reported in something called the CEC, which stands for cation exchange capacity. And I'm going to get into a little deeper explanation of that here in a moment. But that number that is given as a CEC gives you an indication of how coarse or how fine the soil is. Many people tell me, for example, that they have a clay soil, and I'll look at their soil analysis, and I can look at that number uh, for CEC and, and realize that they don't have much clay at all in that soil, even though they perceive it uh, to be clay because of the way that the soil particles are formed. It'll give us an indication of the pH of the soil, the acidity or the alkalinity of the soil, and this is an important thing to understand. And it gives us a good soil analysis, gives us two methods of measuring some of the major plant nutrients. One is called the, uh, uh, the base saturation, and those are elements that are actually kind of magnetically or, or electrically bonded to the mineral particles in the soil. And then it gives us an overall picture of how much of that mineral is in the soil, and that's reported in parts per million, typically. Some soil reports use pounds per acre. I prefer to use a lab that reports in parts per million because pounds per acre, uh, that particular measurement is predicated on the fact that you're only sampling six inches deep. And in my soil, I like to work my soils a foot deep Spirit of Prophecy indicates that we should plow deeply. That's one of Ellen White's statements to us. And she gives us a little bit of a definition of what that plow deeply means in a, a, a description of a vision that she had at Avondale, where the Lord opened up a furrow of soil, and she described that furrow as being a quarter of a yard deep, which is nine inches. And uh, by having a deeper uh, uh, analysis of your soil and working your soil more deeply, particularly the way that I farm, where I grow very intensively, it gives a much larger reservoir of nutrition, a much larger area that is, is available to the root systems of plants to produce and, and to produce abundantly. The other advantage of uh, 
uh, of a soil analysis, especially if we're uh, following protocols to try to achieve a given result, is we can determine from a soil analysis exact targets for the mineral applications that we want to make to that soil to bring it into balance. Many people resist uh, uh, analyzing their soil and I think most of that resistance is just based on the fact that most people don't know what to do with the soil analysis and you have to rely on someone else to interpret it for you and that can get a little bit complex because there are a number of different ways to analyze soil too and I'll cover some of that this morning next slide please one of the things that's reported that's important to us is the pH of the soil most of us have heard this. Most of us understand that our crops uh, for, for ideal growth, like a pH range between about 6.7 and, and neutral at, at 7, that's uh, excellent for most crops. Uh, part of the reason for that, next slide please, is that it has to do with nutrient availability. And this slide here will give you an idea of what I'm talking about. Uh, what's reported on this slide here is um, at a given amount of nutrient, each element here in, in a given quantity has a different availability based on the pH here. So for example, if you have uh, a given amount of iron in your soil, the more alkaline the soil becomes, the less is available. Uh, similarly, if you have boron in your soil, uh, uh, at a given amount, the pH impacts the availability of the boron, and with things like phosphorus, which is a primary nutrient, this becomes pretty important because phosphorus is, uh, is very important uh, for plant growth. It's also expensive if you need to apply it, and if you're applying phosphorus and your pH is down in the range of five and a half or so, you're getting very, very little efficiency out of it. So that's one of the reasons that we pay such clo close attention to the, to the pH. Next slide, please. In agriculture, there are three primary soil chemical classes. Uh, the dominant soil class that's used for agriculture around the world are, are considered acid soils. These are soils that have a pH uh, below seven. Uh, they have free hydrogen in the base saturation, and I'll, I'll explain what the base saturation is here momentarily. And uh, the, the vast majority of, of soils in the world that are used for agriculture are acidic soils. Even here in Texas, where you have light-colored soils, oftentimes with lots of calcium in them, uh, you can have free hydrogen in those calcitic soils and still have an acid condition. Uh, calcareous soils is the second classification. These are the soils that are generally the most productive in the world. Uh, the area that I came from, uh, the northern Sacramento Valley and the central valleys of California, uh, the Salinas Valley uh, in, in California, famous for its agriculture. These are examples of calcareous soils, uh, as well as the Willamette Valley in Oregon. Uh, calcareous soils contain calcium and magnesium carbonates, and they often uh, contain uh, quite high levels of, of phosphates, and these are, are the most fertile soils in the world and used for agriculture. The last classification here are the sodic soils. These are highly alkaline soils, usually with a pH above eight. Uh, they have a lot of sodium in the base saturation rather than hydrogen. 
They tend to be very poorly drained, even if they're very coarse soils, even if they're sandy soils and they are very high in pH. Uh, water does not penetrate very well. That's why we see oftentimes uh, you know, such uh, dramatic flooding after thunderstorms, even out in the desert states of, of New Mexico and Arizona. That's uh, because the water cannot get into the soil and that's a chemical barrier in the soil rather than a physical barrier to the water penetration. <clears throat> they tend to be very poorly drained also and these are found mostly in arid and semi-arid regions. Next slide please. So my suggestion to gardeners if you're serious about growing things at all is first and foremost your first step should be a soil analysis. Let's see what we're working with. If we're not gonna make the investment of a soil analysis, all of the other investments that we make in our gardening uh, are, 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 are potentially going to be inappropriate. And the reality is that a good quality soil analysis, and, and the, the laboratory that I like to use is A&L Laboratories, our nationwide system of laboratories, is only $15 or less. And for that $15, I get more information than even me as a skilled agronomist with 50 years of experience could get by observing the crops growing for, for a period of three or four years. It would take me a long time to understand all of the chemical characteristics of that soil simply by growing crops and observing the crop response to the minerals that are present there. So it's a very good investment. And I suggest that you use a reputable privately run soil laboratory. Many of our state uh, ag uh, programs and extension services offer very inexpensive or even free uh, soil analysis. And I, I, I suggest that, that you don't rely entirely on that simply because those are training programs for soil scientists. Those are laboratories that are, are, are publicly funded that may not have the latest equipment. And oftentimes, because of the difference in paradigm that I mentioned on how I use the soil analysis, you don't get complete information from a state lab. There are a few exceptions to that. University of North Carolina has an excellent soil laboratory. And uh, Cornell uh, also has an excellent soil laboratory. But for the most part, most of our states simply can't compete with the quality of a soil analysis that you'll get from a privately run laboratory. And privately run laboratories also have a much higher incentive to provide you with accurate results. If they are analyzing uh, 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 soil samples from a, a 5,000 acre farm and that farmer is making his economic investments based on what that soil analysis tells him, if the lab is way off the mark, it's going to cost him a tremendous amount of, of, of money over time. So their level of accountability is quite a bit higher if they want to stay in business. Be certain, absolutely certain, that whatever laboratory you choose to use has a component in the soil analysis called base saturation. That's actually the most important information that you'll get from a soil analysis. And as I said, I'll give you an explanation of that here in a moment. But if a, if, if a lab is just reporting to you elements in parts per million, you're not getting all of the information that you need. <clears throat> the, which slide do we have? Okay. Uh, 
the other thing that's important to understand is that there are different ways that laboratories extract elements from your soil sample. And this extraction method is really important for you to be aware of because the results of your soil analysis are going to be predicated on the extraction method that is used. For example, uh, some of you have probably been in Whitmar's uh, soil classes and uh, you know Whitmore understands what he's teaching very very well and he is looking at a soil analysis that is different than the model of soil analysis that I use. Now his perspective and my perspective are, are uh, we, we don't disagree with each other we just have a different perspective in the use of that analysis and the analysis that Whitmore uses is an analysis that gives essentially a snapshot of what's in that soil and what's available to the plant at that moment. And he uses uh, uh, typically an ammonium acetate or a Morgan extract. And uh, the analysis that I use is the Melic 3 extract, which is uh, uh, going to give me a, a, a broader picture, a deeper picture of not only what's available in the soil at that moment, but what potentially is available to be released in that soil from the mineral content. And the different extraction methods are Bray, uh, which is used primarily for calcareous soils with a pH uh, of, of uh, 7.3 or higher. The ammonium acetate or the Morgan extraction, which is a very low acid extraction, that's used for container gardening. Uh, most nurseries use that form when they're, when they're uh, you know, adding nutrients to, uh, to potted plants because they need to know what's there and available to the plant. Those plants aren't going to be in those pots for a long period of time. And these are, uh, are, are more readily available water-soluble nutrients that you're looking at. Uh, the Melic 1 extract isn't really used very much anymore. Most of it has gone to, the, to what's called the Melic 3. And the Melic 3 is ideal, in my perspective, for acid soils and for soils with a pH below 7.3. And the reason that I use this Melic extract, or I use a laboratory that, that use, utilizes the Melic extract, is because part of my paradigm for growing crops is that I want rich organic matter in the soil. I want active organic matter. I don't necessarily want more than 5% organic matter, but that organic matter, if it's living organic matter, can really enhance the capacity to solubilize nutrients that are tied up in those mineral soil particles that wouldn't show up in a Bray analysis, that wouldn't show up in a Morgan extract. Do you follow me? Do you understand what I'm, what I'm trying to convey here? Uh, on a very, very high pH soil, uh, if you're 8 or above, then I recommend using what's called an Olsen extract. And that also gives you a better representation of what's available in that soil over a period of time uh, if your soil pH is very high. So understanding the extraction method is really important. Someone was showing me a soil analysis at lunch yesterday and uh, wanted to to, to, to get my opinion on it, and I looked at it, and there was no indication on the analysis itself of what method of extraction they used. So that uh, was useless information to me because, beg your pardon? You can, you can call the laboratory. In most instances, commercial laboratories will tell you when you fill out your form to submit your sample what analysis method they use. This particular lab didn't do that. And because of that, those numbers were, were quite literally meaningless to me. 
So uh, the extraction method is important. And uh, my preference, uh, particularly for acid soils or low pH soils, is, uh, is for what's called the S3M package from ANL Laboratories. This is a $15 sample. I've used ANL Laboratories over the course of 30 years or so. I've been very satisfied with uh, the quality of their results. Their laboratory protocols are very good. And they're also one of the least expensive labs, too. Uh, it's probably one of the largest labs serving uh, commercial agriculture in, in the country today. Next slide, please. Another component of the soil that's really pretty important along with understanding what the mineral analysis is in your soil is understanding what your soil texture is. And I want to just give, go over this briefly. Uh, but soil texture is simply an explanation of the particle size of the minerals in your soil. The particle size of the minerals in your soil is what we call soil texture. And this falls into three categories. And this graphic up here is actually a two-scale representation of these three uh, particle sizes. When you say you have a clay soil, it doesn't tell me anything about the chemistry. All it tells me is, is, is something about the particle size. And a, a, a particle of sand is obviously very large. Most of us are familiar with that. Uh, a silt particle is significantly smaller than a sand particle. And a clay particle is infinitely smaller than a sand particle. So uh, the, the, the particles in a given volume of soil can vary tremendously in their quantity and the numbers of particles within that volume of soil. And this has a very big impact on the potential for that soil to hold nutrients. Clay soils are actually the best soils to farm. And when people complain about the clay in their soils, I just kind of shake my head because there are ways to manage some of the strategic problems of dealing with that because clay's heavy and it's tough to work with. But potentially, as far as holding nutrients, it's by far uh, better than sand. Uh, we look at a soil analysis and we can determine to some degree what our soil texture is from the cation exchange capacity. And in the next slide I'll explain that. But most soils are not 100% sand, 100% silt, or 100% clay. They're a combination of those three different particle sizes. And this triangle here indicates the most productive soils to be in this part of the triangle. This is 100% clay here, 100% sand, 100% silt. Somewhere where we have a, a, a relative balance, a little bit leaning towards the silt, is where the most productive soils are. Now, the soil particle size is important because these particles have an interesting property. Next slide, please. And that is that mineral particles in the soil have a slight negative electrical charge. And this slight negative electrical charge uh, determines what we call the CEC, or the cation ex exchange capacity, because positively charged ions can attach to those negative soil particles. And the size of the soil particles determines, in a given volume of soil, how much electrical charge is there. Do you follow me? And that electrical charge is going to be important here in just a minute. Next slide, please. 
Now one of the ways that you can kind of get an idea too of what the soil texture is, is by what we call a jar test. Just take a pound of, of, of soil, put it in a quart jar, fill it up with water, shake it, and let it stand for about 24 hours. And what will happen is it will segregate. And in this particular example here, uh, at the bottom of the tape is where the lines are of this segregation. This is the sand down here. The larger particles settle out first. This is the silt from here to here, and this is the clay that's in the top layer here. Now, if you let this stand long enough, this water will actually become clear up here. This is, is, is uh, 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 hasn't really stood long enough, but using that method, you can kind of determine what your percentage of sand, silt, and clay is too in a, in a very coarse way. Now, much of what I do in analyzing a soil analysis has to do with some work that was done by this gentleman. And those of you that are, are uh, experienced gardeners here probably heard of Dr. William Albrecht. Uh, he, to me, was far ahead of his time. He had some prophetic insights into how to understand and comprehend the role of soil in not only plant nutrition, but also animal and human nutrition. And Dr. Albrecht focused on an aspect of the soil called the base saturation and the cation exchange capacity that I make use of today. And rather than looking simply at the mineral nutrients that your plants need, the fertilizers, he looked at the overall fundamental chemistry of the soil in terms of its ability to provide habitat for microorganisms and to facilitate uh, uh, chemical reactions because of the microbial activity in the soil that liberated nutrients and made those soils both productive and provided for greater health for both animals and human beings. In the 1940s, he wrote this statement at the bottom of the slide, and unfortunately, mainstream agriculture still hasn't grasped this concept. Uh, he's largely been marginalized in part because if we follow his method, we're going to be making some investments in our soil that are by commercial standards quite costly. And the rate of return is not always predicated on the input to the soil because farmers that are growing corn in Iowa get paid per ton of corn. They don't get paid per ton of nutrition. And Albrecht's concept pushed us in the direction of thinking about how nutritious that product is rather than just how much volume was there. So his work has largely been marginalized. Fortunately, it's been taken up in the last 10 years or so, and more people are paying attention, especially small-scale growers are paying attention to what uh, we were able to learn from him. And in the 1940s, he made this statement at the bottom of the page here, and I just want to read it to you because it's a pretty profound statement. NPK formulas, that's nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, as legislated and enforced by state departments of agriculture and also mainstream agriculture, mean malnutrition, attack by insects, bacteria, and fungi, weed takeover, crop loss in dry weather, and general loss of mental acuity in the population, leading to degenerative metabolic disease and early death. Pretty, pretty strong statement, huh? Now, this was written back in the 40s. Have we seen any evidence of this in recent times? Yeah. So anyway, he, he's one of my personal heroes, and um, I've, I, I not only say that because I value what he said, but I value what he did in that by following his methods, I've had excellent results across the board in all of the agricultural enterprises I've been involved in. Next slide, please. 
Now, what Dr. Albrecht's great contribution was, remember we talked about those little mineral particles of soil having a slight negative charge. Well, there are positively charged ions in the soil that are plant nutrients and that are other constituents that are attached to those soil particles. Calcium, magnesium, potassium, hydrogen in acid soils, sodium in alkaline soils are attached to those soil particles. And uh, Dr. Albrecht's great contribution was determining how much of each of these should be attached to those soil particles. And that's what's expressed in that term base saturation. On the soil analysis, when we see that term base saturation, it's talking about these elements that are bonded to the soil particles. And getting the right ratio of this in our soils is really what lights the fuse for all of the activity in the soil biologically, including plant roots and, and, and plant growth, but it is a critically important factor in converting the other nutrients that plants need into a form that's available to plants too. So it's the catalyst. This is the most critical step is dealing with this base saturation. Next slide, please. <clears throat> now, if you want some more resources about that that explain this, uh, there's a, a, a free download on my website. This is a, about an 80-minute uh, PowerPoint presentation that I did for Country Living University that goes through step-by-step step how to apply Albrecht's principles to your soil analysis. And uh, if you go to bereagardens.org, you, you can find this. There's also another interesting video here called The Other Side of the Fence. This was actually produced back in the 40s. And it's Dr. Albrecht himself explaining and expressing some of the challenges that we have in agriculture because we're not nourishing the soils properly. Next slide, please. So on our soil analysis, what we should have are two representations sometimes of the same chemical element. And you probably noticed this if you've got a, a, a soil analysis from a lab that reports both of these things. The base saturation is those calcium, magnesium, and potassium atoms that are act or, or elements that are actually attached to the mineral particles of the soil. That's reported in a percentage. For every 100 soil particles, if I have 68 uh, calcium ions attached to them, then my base saturation would be 68. Do you follow me? The parts per million measurement of calcium includes all of the calcium that's in that total volume of soil because there are minerals in that soil that are not attached to the soil particles in the way of the, uh, the biological material that's in that soil, uh, aspects of calcium that are in the soil solution and floating freely between the soil particles. So that's the overall picture of the total amount of calcium that's in that soil, whereas the base saturation gives you an indication of how much is bonded to the mineral particles. And it's very important to have a soil analysis that gives you both of those numbers. Okay, next slide please. Uh, this is an example, I know you can't read the numbers up here on the slide, but this is an example of a soil analysis that I use. And down here in this corner, 
you can make this out. This says percent base saturation. This tells me the percentage of calcium, magnesium, potassium, and hydrogen that's in that soil. That's critically important to know in order to manage your soil properly. Up here on the top line, we have potassium, magnesium, and calcium reported in parts per millions. Those numbers report different things, and I just want to clarify that because you need to understand that in making use of your analysis. You can't simply look at the numbers in parts per million up here and deduce what is down here. So those are the two elements of a soil analysis that are critically important. Next slide, please. Okay, this is just, uh, go ahead to the next one too, please. Just to reiterate. Okay, now most of us are aware that plants need 17 essential elements to, to survive and to thrive. This is the basis for hydroponic agriculture. Uh, by the way, those of you that are, I see some of you uh, taking photographs, I just want to make you aware I haven't supplied them yet, but these, this actual PowerPoint will be available uh, on, the, on the AdAgra website uh, probably in the next day or two. So you'll, you'll have all of these at your availability. Uh, there are 17 essential plant nutrients and most of these are reported on most soil analysis but a couple of them aren't and I just want to mention that so that you don't think you're getting an incomplete analysis when you get it from a laboratory. Uh, if you use uh, the, the one that I suggested, the S3 analysis for example, they're not going to report how much molybdenum is in the soil. And one of the reasons for that is they haven't developed a really accurate test for molybdenum. So it's generally not reported. Molybdenum is usually, uh, uh, it, it, it's rarely deficient in most soils. I'm not going to say it doesn't happen. It does at times, but it's easier to diagnose that from plant growth rather than it is to take a soil sample for molybdenum. It's not a particularly accurate analysis. The other one that won't show up on your soil analysis is nickel, and that's because nickel is used in such tiny, tiny amounts that there are no known instances on the planet of nickel deficiency. It just doesn't exist because it's uh, so, uh, you know, it's used in such, such tiny amounts. Um, some uh, uh, labs will report cobalt as an essential nutrient. Uh, cobalt has not been es established as an essential nutrient, but cobalt does have an influence on the availability of molybdenum in the soil. So I put that on here just to, to, to clarify that, uh, yes, uh, cobalt does have an effect on plant growth, but it's not an essential nutrient. Next slide, please. All right, now one of the things that I have come to understand, and, and you know, last night I mentioned that uh, I'm often stunned by what we don't know about agriculture, is that we know virtually everything agronomically about those 17 essential elements and how critical they are to agriculture and how to apply just the right amount, amounts at, at the right time and to get the right ratios. But the problem is that Human beings require at least 15 additional elements for health. We need 15 more, and those are all the ones with the asterisk here. And there's not a soil analysis on the planet that will give you a soil analysis indicating uh, the quantities of those 15 elements. And even if we had that information, we wouldn't know what to do with it. Because the blind spot in agronomics today is that these are not even considered as important to agriculture. 
Now, it becomes important to me when I realize that over time, next slide please, over time these plants that were that we're growing mine these minerals out of the soil. They're taking them up. So even if initially those other 15 elements were in the soil, unless we're replacing them, unless we're addressing the fact that we're removing them, uh, we're not uh, growing plants that can provide complete health. Now, even though the plants don't use those 15 elements, they get piggybacked into the plant with other chemical compounds. They take uh, these elements out of the soil in the form of compounds and can become part of the plant tissue and feed you and I or the animals that meat eaters might be eating. But without addressing this, what that means is we are continually dropping in these elements in the soil and this is one of the reasons why food is so much less nutritious today. Okay, would you skip the next slide please and go to the, to the following slide? All right, so how do we take a soil sample? I see we're running out of time here, <laughs> and that's what you came to hear. How do I take a soil sample that's going to be valuable to me? And the first step is to represent the root zone accurately. And what I mean by that is if we're gonna be farming a foot deep, as I do, I want a sample that represents that whole foot. I don't wanna just scratch the surface and grab something off the surface. So I dig a hole that's a foot deep. That's my first step. I, I scrape away, hold questions till the end, if you will, and I will answer them, but uh, it, it's better if, if we do it at the end. Um, I, I want to scrape away the top two inches, which is basically most of the organic matter, and get a representation of what that mineral content is in the soil. So I use a clean shovel and I dig a, a, a hole a foot deep. I also want to represent the area accurately. So my first study is to look at the ground and to see if there are variations in the soil itself for whatever area I'm sampling, whether it's a, a 50 by 50 foot garden or a five acre field. If there are obvious visible differences in the plant growth, in the texture of the soil, in the color of the soil, I'm going to sample those areas differently and treat them differently. The other thing is that we want to use clean instruments when we sample. I use a clean shovel when I dig my hole a foot deep, and basically that's what I do is just dig a hole a foot deep, a nice round hole. And I want to sample the soil at a mod moderate temperature. I don't want to do it when it's really hot, and I don't want to do it obviously when it's frozen. That gives us a better indication of what the actual mineral balance is in the soil because biological activity has an influence on that and that fluctuates when it's hot and when it's cold. And I want to sample at moderate soil moisture. It's best not to sample when it's really, really dry and it's best not to sample when it's saturated or really, really wet. And uh, you know, the, the criteria that I use is if I dig some soil and I squeeze it together, if there's free water coming out of the soil, it's too saturated. If it sticks together in a clump, that's just fine. And you can send wet soil to the laboratory. Their first step is to actually put it in an oven and dry it out. So uh, it's okay to set wet, send wet soil to the laboratory. And I use a composite sampling method, meaning that in those areas that I'm going to sample, I'll dig two or three or four holes and take a small amount of soil of each of those, of, from each of those holes and combine them together. This is a very important step. You never want to just select one spot for your soil sample. And why is that? It's because there is tremendous variation in the soil. 
And if you happen to pick a spot that the birds flew over the night before and, and bombed, you're gonna, have, you're gonna have the influence of, of, of that waste matter in your soil sample that isn't present in the rest of the field. So it's really important to use a composite method for your sampling. And essentially all I do is I take a shovel, I dig a hole a foot deep and about a foot in diameter. I take a, a clean stainless steel tablespoon and I start at the bottom of the hole and I scrape a little soil all the way to the top of the hole and get a tablespoonful of soil. And I put that, I just use a, a, a Ziploc uh, freezer bag uh, to put the sample in. And I'll do that in three or four places within each hole that I've done and combine that together so that I have about a pound of soil, which is about as much as your fist. And that's what I send to the laboratory. And that uh, has provided me with results that are excellent. Now, there are other tools that are, that are being sold today, soil probes where you can just poke down into the soil and pull it back out and have a nice little plug of soil. I don't suggest using those on a small scale. Uh, I did for many years when I was taking 50 or 60 soil samples a day, but uh, the reality is that um, you know most of our soils that we're gardening with are not stone-free and they're not really friable soils, and it's hard to get one of those a foot deep if you're going to be sampling deeply too. So the key points I want to make is try to represent your soil as clearly as possible, and that means depth and also area. So if you do that, you'll get uh, a sample sent to the lab that can be made very, very useful to you. Understand the method of analysis that's being used. And for those of you that want to, to learn and understand more about that, you can come see me back in the corner. Uh, we've got a table in the back there, and uh, we do offer training programs on how to go through a soil analysis, and, and uh, we have lots of information available about that. So with that, I'll conclude. I think we're probably out of time. And I want to say thank you very much and blessings to you all. Are there any questions? Yes. Yes, sir. Uh, how do you clean your tools so they won't have the residues? Or how do I clean my tools so they don't have residues? Uh, you don't, some, some soaps might leave a residue on that. Uh, some soaps might leave a residue, but the solution to that is just to rinse them very, clear, you know, very, very thoroughly. Uh, in most instances, you're not going to, to skew your results real significantly. It, it, it doesn't have to be a sterile tool. Just, just clean. Can the plastic bag influence it any? In some instances, yes. I use food grade uh, Ziploc bags for the samples that I submit. Some laboratories will provide you with a waxed paper bag, or if your soil is dry enough, a paper bag is also suitable. But uh, something like a, a, a trash bag or, or, or you know, something that's designed for some other product can leach uh, some chlorides and other things into the, into the sample. The other thing that I should mention, too, is you want to get your sample, samples to the laboratory quickly. Uh, don't, you know, leave, don't throw it in a plastic bag and leave it on the seat of your pickup truck for two weeks and then send it in. So you want, you want to do it promptly. You said you scrape the side of the hole. I scrape the side of the hole. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes, sir. Well, that's the problem. 
I do not, uh, the, the question was, he, he heard that by telling deeply, you, t you get anaerobic bacteria from, from deep in the soil profile and you exchange that with the aerobic bacteria on the surface when you flip the soil over. Uh, the reality is that the environment in the soil at a foot deep is not a whole lot different than it is at the surface. You still should have lots of air in that soil and the bacterial populations are not going to be significantly different. I, I, I would disagree with that statement. Yes, ma'am. My question was going to be, if you don't plan to, to, to till your soil a foot deep, can't, can you invigorate the soil deeper than, than the six inches that you're working? Is that my understanding? Okay. Yes, there are, there are ways to use chemistry to help accomplish that as well as crop cycles, but I think we're out of time, so if you'd like to talk about that a little more, I will. Yes. You, well, um, sample where the roots are, is what I will say. If the roots aren't there, don't sample there. Okay. All right. I'm sorry, sir? The volume of the sample should, uh, he asked uh, what, what the volume of the sample should be. Each sample should be about a pound of soil, and that's about the size of your fist. One last question, and then we'll have to close. When is it appropriate to retest? That's an excellent question and one that's beyond the scope of this class because it really is based on what your results, what your initial results tell you and what courses of action you follow after that. As a general rule of thumb, I sample about every three years, but there is reason for that and I can't say to you to sample every three years. So it's all predicated on what the results of your sample are and what courses of action that you have taken. So there's no pat answer to that question. All right. Well, I'd like to thank you all very much. It's been a blessing to have you here, and I pray you all have excellent success with your gardens this, this coming year. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.